right, good. Happy New Year. So uh, today we're continuing our series in the book of Romans. And Romans, as we uh, looked at it a couple of weeks ago, is like the sort of quintessential book of the New Testament. If you want to know what Christianity is all about, you're going to find pretty well everything in the book of Romans. This is a place where things are clearly explained and articulated and laid out and even argued. I mean, the writer Paul, it's like he's, it's like he's anticipating the opposition and the retorts and the arguments and the pushback from his audience, and he puts himself in their mind and writes that way. So this is a... I mean, if you, again, if you want to know what Christianity is, you, you, you would do well to read the book of Romans. It's 16 chapters long. It's, many would consider it like the masterpiece of the New Testament, okay? And we, we're in chapter 3 and 4 today, and the title of our message is Born That Way, question mark. Born That Way, question mark. You remember in chapters 1 and 2, Paul talks about good news and bad news, Right? The good news and uh, the word gospel is a, it's a Greek word that we would translate into English, good news. And he tries to define what is the gospel, what is the good news, what is the message of Jesus. And he talks about this a little bit in Romans 1, but then he gets into the bad news. And remember, good news is only good when you know bad news first. You can't say good news is good unless you know what bad is. You can't know what bad is unless you know what good is. You can't know what good is unless you know what bad is, right? And when he gets into the bad news, it's really bad. He really has a, a strong message about sin and how sin has kind of penetrated every area of our lives. Romans chapter 1, as we said, is one of the most supercharged, explosive, politically incorrect, texts of the, like our time, especially in our culture, I do think there will come a time that reading out of Romans 1 will, will cost you something and will get you into some serious trouble if you read out of Romans 1, but this is what Paul writes, and as I said, he, he doesn't really anticipate that, well, 20 centuries later, there's going to be some people mighty upset in North American culture about what I'm about to write. He, that's not what he was thinking. He just wrote what he felt that God was telling him to write. And sometimes when you hear the bad news from the doctor, it's bad. But would you rather not hear it at all, or would you rather hear the straight goods and hear the truth? And this is what Paul does here in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 2, he gets into this, this whole theme of judgment. And, you know, we talked about, well, is it right to judge? Is it wrong to judge? Didn't Jesus say, don't judge? Are we allowed to judge? And we went into the whole thing about judgment and hypocritical judgment is what God condemns. He doesn't condemn judgment. He condemns hypocrisy, hypocrisy. And we finished uh, last week talking about um, uh, how a person can receive praise from God because of the surrender of their heart to him, not because of some physical ceremony uh, in that time circumcision, and we'll get into that in a moment, uh, but because of the change of the heart, not the physical body, a person can be accepted by God and can receive praise from God, the end of Romans chapter 2. 
So to start our message today, uh, born that way, question mark, I want you to think about uh, this question. It, are you born blank religion, maybe Christian, maybe Jewish, maybe Muslim, maybe Hindu, maybe Sikh, whatever. Are you born blank religion? If your parents are blank religion, what do you think, yes or no? Let's say you're, both your parents are mm, Sikh. Does that make you a Sikh in the Sikh religion? Probably. I'm not that familiar with it. Uh, what about, uh, we'll, we'll pick a couple of them that, that you may be more familiar with. What about Judaism? I'm very familiar with it. <laughs> if you're, it, it, how does it work in Judaism? Well, it's on your screen. In Judaism, if your mother is Jewish, you're Jewish. That's the way it works. If you're born into a home and at least the mother is Jewish, you're Jewish. And in fact, in Judaism, if you've got a Jewish guy and he marries a, a non-Jewish girl, a Gentile, she's got to go through a conversion process to become Jewish so that their kids will be considered Jewish. And they get this idea of the mother determines the religion from a couple of vague passages from Ezra, the book of Ezra, and also from uh, Deuteronomy. Curious twisting and interpretation of scripture to get to that point, but that's what they believe. So it's very significant that the mother must be Jewish in order for the child to be Jewish. And Islam, whichever parent, if one of them is not a Muslim, but one of them is, then the child is Muslim. Because in Islam, the Islamic religion is the superior religion in the world. So it doesn't matter if it's a, a Christian who marries a Muslim, well, the Islam triumphs over Christianity in their view, and therefore the child is therefore a Muslim. So in their view, it's determined by the parents. You're, 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 whatever your parents are, that's the way you're going to be and that's fascinating. Even in, even in Roman Catholicism, which, of course, has penetrated our culture here in Quebec, uh, the parents, when they make a decision to baptize their infant, what, the reason why they're doing that is they're bringing them into the Catholic faith. They are conferring their faith upon their child through that ceremony, in their view, of baptism, and that makes the child a Catholic. And that absolves them of the sin of Adam. And so they are now Catholic. <laughs> little, little kids crying, you know, being baptized. And very, very important for the parents because they got to make sure that their little kids go to heaven. They got to make sure that they're Catholic. So in, in many religious views, what your parents are is what you are in terms of your your beliefs, these are the beliefs that you are going to adhere to. Now, the question is, is that true in what we're about to read? And I'll use the term Protestant Christianity here to differentiate from Roman Catholicism because you do have a divergence there 
right from the 16th century you have that whole thing where you've got protestantism here and catholicism over here and there's there's great differences and in the protestant reformation the apostle paul's writings were very very significant for the for the reformers and for martin luther and so on they based a lot of their stuff on what the apostle paul wrote well in what he's writing who determines the religion of the child are they born that way? If my parents are Christian and followers of Jesus, am I automatically? Yes or no? How many say yes? It's okay. You can say yes. It's a... How many say no? Okay, there's no, more no's than yeses. What Paul is about to say is the answer to the question is an unequivocal no. Unequivocal no. What determines whether or not a person is a Christian is not the parents, is not the heritage, is not the pedigree at all. And this is what he starts winding into out of Romans chapter 2 and into Romans chapter 3. Uh, and he's in the very delicate subject of circumcision and I've got a picture of one on your on your screen there and there you see you see dad and you know he's he's got a little baby in his hand kind of on the right half of the screen and he looks pretty serious dad doesn't he I mean he's like man I hope this rabbi does the job right and, uh, you know, circumcision is very is awkward to talk about. I mean, I heard an ad on the radio this week in the car, and there's actually a company advertising on a non-religious radio station, circumcision. I said, wow, that's fascinating. They weren't talking about it in a Jewish context, just talking about the benefits of the procedure, which, of course, only affects males, right? And so here we have a circumcision taking place here, and the Apostle Paul, he's, he kind of concludes Romans chapter 2 by saying, you know, this, this whole thing of whether or not a person has gone through this and, you know, they're, they're therefore Jewish if they've gone through this and they're, they're supposedly something special, he says no. He says circumcision of the heart is what is important by the spirit and not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. And this, he's apparently dismissing the idea that the Jewish people, some of whom were in the church in Rome, who he's writing to, but there's a lot of non-Jewish people there, but that the Jewish people there are no better at all than the non-Jewish people remarkable they're no better what God is after is not a circumcision of the flesh and you know we that we we look at it today and we say man what a thing what a procedure I mean it makes your face blush while you're talking and the men in the room you say boy do I have to have surgery to to follow God <laughs> you know um, you know Paul circumcised Timothy when Timothy was an adult 
Read the book of Acts. Paul actually did it. I often wonder what that must have been like. You know, hold still, Timothy. We have to do this because we need to, you know, we need to have these inroads to talk to these people. So let me do this. And you know, I just can just imagine, right? In the, in the scripture, you have some cases of adults. And, but of course, in, in most cases, it was children. It was baby boys. And this is what they go through. This is the mark of God on the child. They're marked of God. This is, of course, goes way back to Abraham, way back to him. And this was the sign of the covenant that God made between him and the Jewish people. And Paul, a Jewish man, is apparently saying that does not put you in a right standing with God. What God is after is a change of heart, a circumcision of the heart. And what he's going to do in the intro to Romans 3, and really debate this through the whole chapter with them, is that the Jewish people, the religious folks, if you will, in today's jargon, the people who knew the Bible, the people who could claim Abraham is our father, the people who could say we're children of Abraham, therefore we're children of God, and we're the chosen people, and so on. He's saying those people are no different and no better than non-Jewish people in the eyes of God. God wants everybody, and he does not have favorites in terms of who's right before him and who's not right before him. He wants everybody, and everybody has the same problem. Now, you may say, well, tell us something we don't know, Pastor. Like, this is, this is what we hear every, you know, every Sunday. This is what's preached in every church and so on. You've got to understand that in that time, in that context, this is a big, big newsflash. This is a big, big deal. This is the first time that this is articulated this way uh, post-Jesus' death and resurrection. Here you have somebody writing with authority to church after church after church. You have the apostles running around preaching all over the place, and starting in Jerusalem and Samaria and headed up, I mean, even as far away as Rome. Paul gets that far and Spain and all of this. This is the message that they're bringing, and this is a big, big thing. To say to these religious people, all of your history and all of your heritage and all of your upbringing and all of that, while it's, while it's all good, that does not make you any more special than the non-Jewish person, the non-religious person, the person who doesn't know God at all, and the person who's not, at least for the males, not circumcised. So what he does here, Romans chapter 3 and verse 9, he says, all the Jews, the Gentiles, all of them are under the power of sin. So it has penetrated all of your life, your thinking, your actions, your attitude, your words, it's penetrated you as an individual, but it's penetrated 
the nations. It's penetrated the world. And it doesn't matter if the person is religious or irreligious. It doesn't matter if they're Jewish or they're not Jewish. They're all affected by it. This is a huge news flash. And what he does is he argues this back and forth with them in Romans chapter 3 because he anticipates there's going to be pushback. And he pulls immediately from seven different psalms, from the book of Ecclesiastes, from the book of Isaiah, one quote after the other after another, and he kind of mashes them together to say, look, even your Bible, even the Bible of the Jewish people is saying that there is no one righteous, not even one. Verse 10, there's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. And he goes on and on to justify his point because he anticipates there's going to be pushback on this. And so he says, look, even your own Bible says this. Now, in modern Judaism, you may not know this, in modern Judaism, this is not what they believe. If you look at the rabbis today and watch them online, I watch one or two of them online who oppose Christianity. There's one or two of them who make it their work to run around and oppose Christianity and attack Christianity. They're quite intelligent. And most of them know their Bibles better than most Christians, even better than most pastors. And, uh, this, and what these rabbis do and what they say is this charge that the church is making and that Paul is making in the New Testament, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He says, you see, they say, you see, this is a manipulation. This is a trap to capitalize on people's low self-esteem. And so people already have a self-esteem issue across the board in culture. And so what these Christians do and what this guy Paul did is he says, no one is righteous. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what that does to a person who already feels that way is it attracts them to the Christian faith. But they will say, no, what God says and what Hashem says is that you're created in the image of God. Yes, you fall. Yes, you fail. Yes, you sin. But if you repent, he will forgive you. Point final. You go straight to him. You don't need someone in between. You don't need someone dying for your sins. And for heaven's sake, you don't need someone telling you what a wretch you are. You know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me and they oppose this and yet here you have 2,000 years ago the apostle Paul saying excuse me it's all over the Psalms it's in Ecclesiastes it's in Isaiah I mean Isaiah 64 all our righteousness is like filthy rags wow that's pretty strong language and yet today, this is a very, very offensive thought. So news flash back then, Paul is saying, all, all, whether you're Jewish, whether you're Gentile, in other words, whether you're religious or whether you're irreligious, all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. There's several implications to this. Number one, and this, this is a radical, radical thought, if that's true, and he argues that it is, then all humanity is born with the need for salvation. 
there, there's an obligation for all humanity to be saved. In other words, all humanity right out of the gate is in trouble. There's an obligation, there's a compulsion, there's a necessity for salvation. Other religious views will not teach this. The major monotheistic religions, Judaism and Islam, do not teach this. What they teach is, well, you, you, you be a good person, you, you, God evaluates you by your works and by what you do. Even if you're not a Muslim, even if you're not a Jew, doesn't matter. If you do good works and you're a good person, God will be fair and God will evaluate you justly. And both of those religious views, by the way, even if you are Jewish or Muslim, you are judged by what you do. Your eternal destiny is based on your works. Your salvation is based on your works. And so you better work. You better do what the religious view says. You better follow the commandments and so on and, you know, follow all the regulations. And hopefully, when it's all over, the scales will tip in a certain direction and you'll be okay in the afterlife, whatever it is, wherever it is. This is not what's being taught in the pages of the New Testament. And even more so in the pages of the whole Bible. This is not what's being taught. What's being taught is there is an obligation for you to be saved. You, Jesus said in John 3, you must be born again. Obligation. He's talking to a religious guy, Nicodemus, who comes to see him at night. And he says, you, even you, religious Nicodemus, must be born again. Obligation. So this is quite a radical view because it means that everybody is born with an issue, born with a problem with their, as, as some have said, we're, we're born with our little fists clenched up against God and we die the same way. Uh, the, the writer Paul would say to the Ephesians, we are by nature objects of wrath. What? By nature? You mean right out of the gate I have a problem? Yes, according to the Christian faith, yes. Wow, this would change things if you, if you really believe that. This would motivate people to want to share their faith because they're sharing their faith with someone who they say, this person is lost and they don't even know it. This is the modern missions movement and the idea of evangelism and getting the news of Jesus out to the world is based on this idea that there is a compulsion for humanity to be saved. This is the view. This is why uh, uh, Christians run around and share their faith. This is why there's an impetus on this in the book of Acts. This is why. Because <laughs> there's an obligation. Humanity is lost. Jewish people don't do that. You will notice Jewish people don't run around and evangelize. Uh, Muslims do. And historically, Islam has quite a history of spreading of their faith by aggression uh, and powerful aggression. Unfortunately, even Christianity in church history, you see a lot of black blots on the church's record. I use that term in quotes, church there, because some of that that happened, people weren't even Christians at all, but they went around violently trying to convert people. I mean, even we see this even in Canada with the whole history 
of the, uh, the, the, the abuse of the indigenous people and these, these schools where their identity was stripped from them and Catholicism was forced onto them and so on. Folks, uh, that's aggression. That's an aggressive tactic. Um, in Judaism, they don't do it. In Judaism, they say, well, well, we'll just be light and if people are attracted to us, fine. But in Christianity, true Christianity, there is an obligation for salvation. Wow, so all humanity is in need of it. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul will say. Uh, also, religious ethnicity. So I come from this background. My, my mother is a pastor and evangelist. My father is a pastor and evangelist. Is a, well, everybody goes to church in our background. Or we, it, it doesn't matter. It, your religious ethnicity, whatever it is, is not, and I'll teach you a word here, salvific. It's not salvific. It doesn't save you. So back then, you have people saying, well, we're Jews, and therefore we're God's chosen people. Paul says, no, it's not salvific. Your whole ethnicity, you claim to be a Jew because you claim your heritage back to Abraham. This is an ethnicity in the Jewish thought. It's not just a religious view, but it's an ethnicity. He says, your ethnicity is not salvific. You can call Abraham your father all you want, but if you don't come to Jesus, it doesn't matter who you call your father. Jesus even had a strong debate with people who said, Abraham is our father. And Jesus says, if you believed Abraham, you would follow me. And he turned around, he turned the tables on them. And he said, you know who your father is? Your father is the, the devil, he said, because you reject me. And before Abraham was, I am. This got him in a lot of trouble, <laughs> making a direct claim to deity there. So your religious ethnicity, calling Abraham your father and so on, oh, I'm circumcised, I know the Old Testament, da, 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 da. It's not salvific, he says, Romans chapter 3 and verse uh, 9. There's no advantage, there's no spiritual advantage in terms of your salvation. All Jews, Gentiles are all under the power of sin. And implication number three, your religious works are not salvific. You can do all you want. You can be a good person. You can be a great person. You can even try and follow all 600 some odd laws in Deuteronomy and Numbers and Leviticus and parts of Exodus. You can follow all those laws. They're not salvific. This is like a big news flash. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. That's talking about the Old Testament, the law of Moses. Rather, watch this, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So people often ask the question in churches today, what is the purpose of this whole thing, this whole Old Testament? Like, have you ever read the book of Leviticus? When's the last time you picked up the Bible and read some of Leviticus? Last month? Okay, good. Good. 
I mean, Levit- it's one of my favorite books in the Old Testament, Leviticus. It really is. Because there's so many details about process there. Process, process, detail, detail, detail. Folks, you try and follow some of that today, you're going to be arrested. You're going to be thrown in jail for trying to follow some of the Old Testament law. Try. You'll see. People will say, arrest that person. The person did this and did this. You know, There are laws in there. You look at some of the ceremonial laws some of the civil laws folks the civil law said if you if you disobey your parents you blaspheme your parents you face the death penalty that's the civil law in leviticus okay there there's a death penalty for a lot a lot of things in the book of leviticus folks like you can't follow those laws today you're going to go to jail if you try and follow all of them and paul says in this back in their time This is what the law is. This is what it does. The law, the heart of the thing, shows you that you can't uh, follow it. It's through the law that you become conscious of sin. Through the law. The only law you have to know to prove this to be true is is the Big Ten. The Ten Commandments. That's all you really have to know. And you just, even if you know a few of those commandments, you've broken every single one of them. And so have I. You've broken every single one. You say, hold on, pastor, I never committed murder. Well, Jesus said, if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. Say, hold on, pastor, I'm faithful to my spouse. Well, Jesus said, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Oh, boy. So it's not just the actions, it's the heart, it's the attitude, it's the impulses, it's the thoughts, yeah. According to God, it is. You and I have broken every single one of just the big 10 to say nothing of the other 600. <laughs> so so what, what Paul is saying is you become conscious of your sin by reading the law. So it serves a very, very important purpose. If you did not know it, you would not be conscious of your transgression, of your wrongdoing, of your sin. And you, all those works and all that effort to try and follow it, it does not save you. Say, what? Well, that, that's a big problem. <laughs> and again, the work-centered religions of the day would completely disagree with this view. But this is a radical view that Paul is presenting to these people in this church in Rome. Well, how then does it work? Well, he says, righteousness from God. This is the good news, that you can be declared righteous by God. Righteousness from God comes through how? Faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, not to all who do good works, but to all who believe. It's faith through Jesus, faith in Jesus, and you're conferred righteousness by God. That is what brings the the assessment of righteousness to your spiritual account in the eyes of God, your faith in Jesus. Wow, this is a radical thought. And you're justified freely. It doesn't cost you anything. 
You're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus. Verse 24. So Jesus clearly has done something that you get it for free because he's done the work in order to obtain it for you because you cannot do the work necessary to obtain it for yourself. Radical thought. All your effort, all your religiosity, all those things. While they're all good, they're not, they're not bad things, they do not save you. They can't. Because if they could, you could boast in them. You could say, hey, look how great and how religious I am. Look at how I can follow all these laws, all 600 some odd laws, and I found a way not to get thrown in jail, even in the 21st century. Folks, there were people like that in the first century who ran around and said, we are the religious elite. We are the keepers of the law. We know how to read it. We know how to interpret it. Who were they? The scribes, the people who copied it, the Pharisees, that's the religious sort of orthodox of the time, they were the ones who were running around showing off that they were so religious. Who did Jesus have the biggest confrontations with? Them. And it was them that he was the most irritated with. It was them that he reserved his harshest condemnation and language for because he said, what you are is Hypocrites, you're actors. You act and you show off and you try and put this whole thing on, but in your heart, it's fake and it's phony. Wow, did he ever get into confrontations with them? The work that Jesus has done, according to Paul here, verse 25, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Talk about this at Easter specifically, the atoning work of Jesus on the cross and ultimately his resurrection from the dead. This is what you need. This is the work necessary. Faith in Jesus is what justifies you and what brings you righteousness in the eyes of God. Now, back in the Old Testament, they had all kinds of sacrifices and all kinds of atonement, not for every single sinful thing, but for many of them, they had this. And this was symbolized annually by the Day of Atonement, when a special sacrifice would be presented and so on. It was symbolic. Now, today, the, again, in modern Judaism, they'll debate this and they'll say, oh, this business of atonement that these Christians talk about, we didn't even need atonement in the Old Testament. Only partially true. For some sin, you didn't need it, but there was a symbolic thing annually for all of it. And so today, they try and dismiss this idea of Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, and they say, look how barbaric this is. These Christians need someone to die for them. We don't. We just go straight to God and we repent. Ha ha. But again, this is by works. The very thing that Paul is challenging and he's saying, no, it isn't by your works. It isn't even by your repentance. You can repent all you want. But if you don't place your faith in the one who did the work for you, you are still lost. 
And then in chapter 4, he's going to pull out an example because he senses there's going to be pushback. And so he says, all right, what shall we say about our forefather Abraham in this matter? So he's going to pull out the granddaddy of the whole thing, the patriarch, the, the, the man who founded Judaism, effectively. He's going to pull him out as an argument, and he's going to say, I'm going to prove to you from the life of Abraham, who gave us circumcision, that it is not by works that you're saved, not even in Abraham's case was it true. And he's going to pull this out uh, in uh, Romans 4 and verse 2, and he'll lay a whole argument out here in the whole chapter. You can read it on your own. What shall we say then that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, then he had something to boast about. But what does the scripture say? And he runs all the way back to Genesis chapter 15. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And this is the foundation of Paul's argument. He says, look, this is before circumcision. God promised that Abraham would be the father of many nations, even though his wife, he's, he's old, his wife can't have children, never had kids, God gives this promise and says, look up at the stars if you can count them. You're going to be the father of nations. All nations will be blessed through you. Paul would say to the Galatians that that's the gospel in advance. Genesis 12, all nations will be blessed through you. He says, see, that's the gospel rough in advance. Because from Abraham, ultimately, you have Jesus. And he says, look, the scripture even says in Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. And he says, look, this is before, before, before you have the whole covenant of circumcision, which was given to Abraham. Why was it given to Abraham? As a seal of the righteousness by faith that he already had. And he argues this, and he keeps going, and he keeps saying, you can't have it by your work, you have to have it by faith. You see a picture there of uh, Abraham and, and Sarah, and you see, of course, the famous scene where Abraham is about to, to uh, in obedience, apparent obedience to God, slay Isaac, the son of the promise, on the altar. And, of course, he raises the knife, and then God says, Stop! I know now that, you, that your faith is... You, I've tested your faith, and he's... Stops him, of course, from, from doing this from the book of Genesis. And he says, look, Abraham, against all hope, Abraham in hope, believed, believed, not worked, and so became the father of nations. You say, well, man, that sounds really good. I mean, imagine you can, through no work of yourself, be saved. You can be called righteous in the eyes of God. Who wouldn't want that? Well, a lot of people wouldn't want it. There's a, there's a teacher who I like to, to watch and read. His name is Frank Turek. And Frank Turek uh, has a question that he asks a lot of people. It's a great question. And he says, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And you know what a lot of people say? No. 
they wouldn't. You say, hold on a second. You can be called righteous in the eyes of God. You don't have to do good works and do religious things to be declared righteous in the eyes of God. He, he can justify you in his eyes. He can free you from sin. Why wouldn't you want that? Well, here's some of the excuses that people have today. I've heard all of these. You've probably heard all of these if you've talked to anybody about your faith. A big one in our culture is I don't feel it. I don't feel like I have faith. I don't, you feel it, but I don't feel it. Who cares what you feel? Like, is this about what you feel? Does Paul say, well, you've really got to feel it. You've got to feel it, and if you feel it, then you can be it, you know? No, he's saying you make a decision to believe. It's not, well, I don't know if I feel it today or I don't feel it today. The concern of the scripture is not how you feel. It's what you've done with your will. Have you submitted yourself to Christ or haven't you? John would say, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life, period. You either have Jesus in your life or you don't have Jesus in your life. Well, how do you get Jesus in your life? You ask him. Those who believed, he gave the right to become children of God. John says in, in his gospel. So, but it's a big excuse that people have. Well, I don't feel it. Another one that people have is say, well, look at the Christians are such hypocrites. I mean, do you know that's true, folks? We are. But so is everybody else. <laughs> it's one thing to turn around and say, oh, look at the hypocrisy of Christians. I'm never going to become a Christian. Really? You can find hypocrisy in every religious view. You can find hypocrisy in every individual if you look close enough. Paul deals with this, this argument in Romans chapter 3, and he says, well, what if some didn't have faith? Some of these Jewish people, what if some didn't have faith and some don't demonstrate their faith? God said, he, Paul says in Romans 3, he says, well, let every man be a liar, but that doesn't nullify God being true. Let, God is true. Every man's a liar. That's no excuse to turn around and say, well, there's hypocritical Christians. So what? You can be one of them. The question is, has God forgiven you for your sin or not? Not whether or not someone else is a hypocrite. Another excuse, people say, well, I'm not good enough. Right, you're not. Paul would turn around and say, that's right, you're not. And you'll never be good enough. Never, never, never will you be good enough. That's why you need the cross. That's why you need the atonement of Jesus. Another excuse, people say, I'm too old. I'm too old. And sometimes it's not age they're talking about. It's, I'm too set in my ways. And this leads to the biggest excuse of all. And this is the real reason all of these are kind of smoke screens. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? Well, if Christianity were true and I became a Christian, it would mean I have to change things. Because I know that I can't just say, well, I believe in Jesus and then live the same way. Because if I live the same way, then I'm not really believing in Jesus. If I'm believing in Jesus, it means, well, I got to stop doing this and start doing this. And you know, it, there, there's implications behind this idea of following Jesus. It's not just, well, I snap my little fingers and I change my belief system. Yeah, that means you change your life. And this is where we get the whole concept of repentance, right? 
And this is why people today, they say, I, I, I don't know if I can do that. Because that means that things in me have to change, have to change. I have to confront myself if I'm going to come to Christ. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. And this is why Paul wrote what he wrote. And this is why he ran around, you know, the first century world and planted all these churches and wrote all these letters because he's challenging people saying, you have to be saved. You have to take a look in the mirror and you have to be saved. You have to come to Christ. There's the obligation, the obligation there. So as we finish up today, I want to put a challenge out to you. And if there are any musicians in the room, you can come in and go ahead and play at the end here. And, and, uh, but I think that there's, there are people who are watching online. There's people who are going to listen to this online. And you know, it, it doesn't really matter who it's coming from. It doesn't matter what, where you're getting the information from. Y you, you are confronted now with the message of Christianity, the real thing. And you've got to do something with that. Like, it doesn't, you could get it from anywhere. You could read a book. You could hear a piece of music. You could hear a preacher. It doesn't matter. But you have to do something with it. Either you're going to fluff it off and say, well, you know, that's good for you, but it's not good for me. I, I don't really need it. I'm doing fine. Well, then you've made your response. But maybe, maybe, just maybe, that's not satisfactory for you. And you realize that you have to place your faith in Christ. You have to make a voluntary decision, a willful decision of faith. It doesn't mean that you, 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 don't have, you know that it means change in your life, but you recognize all that change isn't going to save you. It's just a reflection of the fact that you place your faith in Christ. And you realize nothing is going to make you happy. Nothing, you can search and search and search all you want. Some of you, you've run the gamut of religious views. I mean, you've gone from one religious view to another to another. Some of you, you have a belief system that's an all-dressed pizza of all different kinds of religious views. And what does it do for you in the end? Nothing. It leaves you empty. It leaves you dry. Just hunting and hunting for something that's going to satisfy your soul. Only Jesus will do that. Father, I pray for each person in the room, people listening electronically and so on. Uh, Lord, would you bring people to that place where we turn to you and simply say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The old hymn writer was right. He said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a, a wretch like me, uh, a person who was not intelligent enough, not strong enough, not uh, good looking enough, not wise enough not holy enough, just a person going in circles and in circles and in circles, ultimately lost all the time. Lord, may we call out to you and say, God, have mercy on me. God, forgive me. Jesus, come into my life. You can pray that prayer right now, right where you are. You're online. You can pray it right now in the privacy of your seat where you're sitting in this theater. You can go home and pray it. That the key is the authenticity and 
the, the surrender of the will to God. It's not magic. It's you saying, God, I take my will and I give it to you. Would you help me? Would you make me a new person? Would you give me that spiritual rebirth that Jesus talked about? Lord, I surrender myself to you and thank you for the work that you did on that cross and for that resurrection of the dead. I don't understand it all, but Lord, would you help me and would you move me forward as I surrender to you today? Amen. You prayed that prayer today. I want you to, on your way out, go and visit the desk and pick up one of those purple books that will help you to start getting into the scripture. Come and see me privately. I want to get you moving in the right direction. Even online, you can do the same. God bless you. Make sure you pick up your kids outside in the hall or in screen number 11. And parents, remember to download all that stuff that you'll see on our website. God bless you, everyone. Have a great Sunday.